Delving into Dance with Andrew Westall. Throwing open the curtain on those who have made dance part of their life. Conversations about why they love it, how they do it, and what got them there in the first place. Program notes and links at delvingintodance.com. Welcome to the very first episode of Delving Into Dance. In this season, you'll hear interviews from the likes of Stephanie Lake, Deborah Jowett, and Raphael Bonacella. In this very first episode, we speak to choreographer, writer, and scholar Michael J. Morris, who is Assistant Professor of Dance at Denison University. I caught up with Michael at the Performance International Studies Conference at Melbourne University where we found a quiet place in the corridor to have a chat. Michael's research explores the intersection between the body and ideas of gender and sexuality. In this interview, we discuss everything from ecosexuality, burlesque, buto, and the way research and dance can intersect. This episode does contain adult themed material. The first question I asked Michael is, when did they start to dance? There's a short version and a long version of how I started dancing. But the, the short version is that I was already involved in theater um, at, at the high school level and um, was interested in modes of articulation. This is not how I would have explained it at a thir- as, as a 13-year-old. <laughs> I was interested in modes of articulation or expression that didn't rely on language, didn't rely on predefined concepts of words and things like that. Um, and brought... I, I felt, and some of this is very retrospective understanding. Yeah. I feel like I needed to get back to my body. I was raised in a very conservative Christian um, household, and and in that context, the body is like, automatically sinful. The body is automatically something that um, should be denigrated in various forms. And also, simultaneously, you're taught that it's like the temple of God, but um, but it's also full of sin. And so, I think dancing was one of the ways that I was starting to. Uh, build a connection to my own embodiment. How did the, given that that's the background, how did the parents respond to you dancing? Well, not well. They did not <laughs> respond well. Um, I think they were, initially they were confused by it. Um, they were supportive as long as it was a hobby. Like they would drive me to take ballet classes and things like that. Um, I think they were proud when I first joined a modern dance company because there was like, oh, we don't understand dance, but we do understand that this is an achievement and we understand achievement as like hardworking people. Um, when I said that I was going to major in dance, that was, um, they didn't accept that very quickly. Uh, it took them some time to come around to that and their initial response was, no, you're not going to major in dance. And they had raised, stub- I have a twin, they had raised stubborn children. Um, but I think they've always had, and they, it's interesting, they were supportive in that they they came to every performance I did while I was still living at home, and then once I went to college, they drove to see every performance I did. Um, but they don't talk about it. They don't really acknowledge what it is as much as they're showing up to do the thing in the same way that you would show up for someone's like research presentation or their athletic event or something. Showing up was important. And then after I graduated from college, that was the last performance they saw of mine. So they haven't seen me perform 
or any choreography I've made in over 10 years. Is your twin doing art stuff? Or? Yeah, he, so he got a BFA in painting and then an MFA in art theory and practice. Um, he teaches at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. He writes for artform.com. He exhibits his own work and curates work of other people. So he does visual arts in many different ways. I choreograph, perform, and teach in dance at a university. Um, yeah. So, like, that decision to major in dance, mm-hmm. that's when it, I guess, turns from a hobby, hobby to something that is seen as a, a life, I guess, or mm-hmm. a career or a vocation, whatever, mm-hmm. um, where you want to spin it. What was that decision? Like, was that an easy decision to make? Or? In some way, you don't really know what the deci- you don't really know what that decision means when you're making it. You don't know what it. I wouldn't at that age, at 18, whenever I was just, or whatever, 18, 17, whenever you start applying for colleges um, and start auditioning for programs. Um, what I do now was not even in my world as what dance could be. I had I lived in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, which is like very. Um, southern uh, not arts metropolis place I'd seen like three dance companies at that point so what I thought dance was is not what I now understand dance to be so I, I went into dance as a, as a career path thinking that I wanted to dance for a company I wanted to be a modern dancer in a dance company um, I danced in a small company for a while and I thought that's what I wanted and about two years into college, it was very clear that's not what I wanted, but I was still very passionately attached to this art form um, and shifted from being primarily a performer to primarily identifying as a choreographer who still performs. Um, For years I've said I don't perform anymore and then I have another performance. And it's like, well, I guess, so performance is still a mode of operation or research for me. It's just not my primary identification. so yeah, it, was it an easy decision to make? Ye- uh, yes, but I didn't know what I was deciding at that point. Um, what I did know was that there wasn't a good reason to go to college. It's a lot of time and energy and money. There's no good. It's not a good reason to go unless you know why you're going. Like, uh, and there's so many. And now that I'm teaching a, a lot of these people, um, kids going to college because it's what they're supposed to do or it's what their parents want them to do, but they have no joy in it. They take no pleasure in it. They have no excitement for it. So then it's just like a slow death at the end of which they have no idea what to do because now they have this degree that they never cared about in the first place. And so they have no idea what the next step is. So I, um, the decision for me to go into dance was this is the thing about which I'm passionate so this and this is the next step either I'm going to move to New York and just start taking classes and try to audition for companies or I'm going to get a liberal arts degree um, centered in dance and and go down this path of academia I didn't realize that it was a path at that point but yeah so why what was it that made you decide you didn't want to be a company dancer I don't I am exhausted by performance, and anytime I perform, to this day, um, when I perform, I am depleted. I give a lot of myself to a performance. Um, I think that's part, if, if I am a good performer, which is a question, but if I am, it is because I give so much of myself to whatever it is I'm doing. 
and but it's depleting. And so if I when I was performing regularly, like multiple shows a semester, um, I was just a wreck all the time and unhappy too. Like I was um, innervated by the practice and and I had peers who would come off stage on fire. They were so energized by it. And that's when I started realizing that there are multiple sort of species of people in dance. And there are people who get a lot of, um, they're fed by the experience of being on stage. I am exhausted by the experience of being on stage. And sometimes that exhaustion is worth it. Sometimes it's worth that to get, to create that experience, experience for myself and for other people but it couldn't be at the core because then I was just situating exhaustion at my core. Um, so what is that? Sorry, yeah. what is that experience like in terms of? You mentioned giving it everything, or like you know, lot, like yeah. being really. What is that feeling in dance? Like when you're there and you're on stage and you're just giving it your all. It's intensely concentrated. That's one piece of language I can put to it. Well, the difficulty is it's so physical and then Precisely. you try to put a language yeah. to it. Yeah, but I also I, it I've created a career out of putting language to these <laughs> physical experiences, so I should be able to answer this question. Um, I, I'll share an anecdote, and maybe that'll lead to a further answer. I was performing a, a piece at a, a dance festival one year. I think this was like uh, my junior or senior year. I had gone to study Buto in Japan. I had come back from Japan. And um, just before I went, uh, my grandmother had died. Um, so I was experiencing grief. Or two grandparents had died. So I was dealing with grief, dealing with immersing myself in this form um, that can be extremely visceral, can be um, given, prone to... Um, dealing with the full breadth of human experience, including darkness, including tragedy, including suffering. And I had choreographed the solo for this dance festival. Um, that was naive, looking back, but I was trying to deal with some very harsh realities in the world um, at the scale of the individual soloist. Um, and so I was trying to physicalize or, or craft a physical experience of uh, rape against women, um, the violence of war, hate crimes against queer people, um, which is far too much to take on in a solo. But I, was, but I tried. And every single time I did that piece, I um, felt shattered. I felt emptied out by the end of it. I felt like... I remember talking to actually uh, Tammy Metz-Starr, who's a Bouteau artist. She was the first person I ever took a Bouteau class from. She was at this festival. And afterwards, after I performed the solo, she came over and she was giving me feedback and um, thoughts on the work. And I said, what do you do when you find yourself in a piece that is taking more or asking more from you than you have to give? And she said, I don't know if I've ever been in that situation. I said, oh, <laughs> that's what this is doing. I feel, I, I, I do feel as if I am, um, each time I do this work, I'm destroying some part of myself and I have no like moral compass inside of that. Like, is that a thing one should do? And, and not even really knowing what that means, except for that it, there was the feeling of something is being destroyed as I give myself over to these experiences that I crafted as some sort of um, reference to or response to 
great physical tragedy. Um, so from that point, has your process changed in making work or the way you consider making work or? Sure, yes. I, I think that I try to deal, well first, I, most of my work at this point is far more formalist um, and far more minimalist stylistically. Um, I'm more interested in task-based choreography and what bodies are capable of doing within a set of constraints um, and how exhausting the possibilities within constraints then lead us to some sort of understanding of embodiment or what it means to be a body in this world or what, it, or what a body can do under certain conditions. Um, so most of my questions, my choreography almost always starts from questions they consider choreography to be my research practice, one of my research practices at this point. Um, and at that point, I think I was coming from a far more kind of emotionally driven um, trying to make work that makes a difference when in fact to make work makes a difference the work is the difference that has been made so like um, I think I was trying too hard at that point or something or I just didn't know that other work existed I, I think my, mo my existing model for work at that point was dance is about emotional expression I am utterly uninterested in dance as emotional expression at this point in my career I when bodies do things, there are emotions. Mm. When you try to perform emotion, usually you end up in melodrama. Um, when, so, for instance, a dance I made last year, there's this section where I'm not in this dance, I don't perform in my own work very often anymore, um, but sometimes I do. I, in the case of burlesque, which is one of the genres in which I perform, I exclusively perform in my own work. I don't create burlesque for other people, it's only for me. Um, I mean, the, the choreography, and it's for the audience, whatever. Anyway, this dance that I made last year, there's a section where two different pairs of people, there is someone dragging another body across the stage. They're both on the floor, so they're not standing up and dragging. So horizontal on the floor, they're dragging. It's highly effortful. It's a really difficult thing to do, and we spend a lot of time in the studio trying to figure out how do you, how can you shift your weight horizontally mm -hmm. in order to um, move the weight of a, uh, the dead weight of another body. And so then about halfway, and they're going across the whole stage. So that you, as a viewer, you have a sense very soon that this is going to take a while, mm -hmm. and it's going to be hard, and you sh you have to sit with that. And as the body's executing this task, within a matter of minutes, they're breathing heavy, they're grunting, they're, but they're not trying to emote anything. They're just trying to drag this body across the stage. And no one who's, who I've talked to who's, who saw that work um, did not have an emotional experience of that section. It's incredibly moving to watch someone struggle with the weight of another body. Um, to carry it with them, to carry the weight of another body with them is a struggle. Well, there we've already said something about a human condition. Mm -hmm. um, but it's just a task. It's just a very simple task to do um, that creates a lot of um, articulate, sensitive, uh, evocative possibilities for a viewer. Um, and that's, that's where my work has gone now. Rather than being on stage pretending to undergo violence, which also was 
felt extremely violating, and I'm not even sure it did what I was intending to do. I was a young choreographer. I think I was still in the phase of having to make the bad dances in order to make the better dances. Do you want to talk a bit about your PhD and what that was about? Sure. Uh, yes. So I had finished undergrad, and I was going to take... I did. The plan was to take time off before grad school, um, kind of develop as a professional, and to be very frank, within six months after undergrad, I was incredibly depressed. Um, I had gone from dancing every day, making work constantly, to working at Starbucks 40 hours a week and volunteering at a yoga studio in order to take free classes every day. And so I was doing yoga every day and working at Starbucks for 40 hours a week, and then I was just really sad. Um, and I knew I needed input. I was working with an, or performing with an improv collective at that point um, that was entirely musicians, and I was the, a dancer who worked with them, and we would do these two-hour sets. Um, and after about six months of performing two-hour sets of solo improvisation, I felt like there's no material left in my body. I have no more new material to generate. I need input. I need to be taking classes again. I need to... Um, develop again. So I applied to MFA programs. I was accepted to a, a, and funded in an MFA program in choreography at OSU. Um, and after the first year of the MFA, the Graduate Studies Committee approached me and said, we feel really strongly that your research would be well-suited in a PhD. Have you ever considered that? And I said no. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe, but like it was far, far off. Um, but I, I considered it for a long time, and by the end of the year, applied to the PhD program. I was accepted into that program, so I transitioned from the MFA in choreography into the PhD, while still strongly identifying as a choreographer who was then also pursuing scholarly research. I don't even remember what the, the, the my application, what I said my research project was going to be. I think it had something to do with Bouteau and phenomenology and bodies that listen. What is that? What is a body that listens? So even very early on, I was interested in the, recept the body as recept receptive. Um, very quickly, sexuality and gender became prominent themes in my work. Um, in, the, in the coursework that I was doing and in the, the kinds of papers I was writing in those courses. And artists working around the themes of sexuality. Um, specifically to artists, Annie Sprinkle and Elizabeth Stevens, who are performance artists, they're not dance artists controversial to my committee. Um, and I went to San Francisco and interviewed them, and they had just started work on this new project around eco-sexuality. And I was there to interview them. Specific, I had gotten funding to interview them about what it was like to be an artist couple who created work about love and the ways in which their artistic practice factored into their relationship and the ways in which their relationship factored into their art practice. And all they would talk about was ecosexuality. And so the first day of interviewing, I was really frustrated because like, <laughs> this is not why I'm here. And then I decided to just follow the data. Like, okay, this is where they're taking me. What, what are they trying to communicate? If I'm asking questions about love and sex and, and art and relationships, and they're telling me about ecosexuality, in what way is that the answer to the questions that I'm asking? And that started me down this path of ecosexuality. And really, the first couple of years was me trying to just figure it out. What is this thing they're talking about? Uh, that they're in love with the earth and they're marrying 
the sea and nature is sexy and what does that mean and coming from the theoretical orientations that I was coming from um, primarily phenomenology and also queer ecological studies and um, new materialisms weren't really on the scene yet um, but yeah a lot of queer theory a lot of gender studies how would you describe ecosexuality because oh that's easy now yeah because I saw this show earlier in the year called Ecosexual Bathhouse. Yeah, yeah. I'm so glad you saw that. I wish it was still up because it would be great for my research to have, you know, the opportunity, but it came down in May, so here we are. Yeah. Uh, how would you explain it to somebody that's complete? Well, so the first thing I would say is that the term ecosexual or ecosexuality is used differently by different people in different contexts for different purposes. So already there's, um, I would say there are as many different understandings of ecosexuality as there are of sexuality and ecology and as soon as you blend those two terms together it just proliferates wildly that's my first caveat um, or disclaimer um, inside of that I would say that ecosexuality directs attention to the ways in which sexuality is already ecological and presents sexuality as a framework for considering our ecological relations. So, for instance, in very practical ways, in our most basic understandings of sexuality and sex, um, the human body is comprised of 90% genomes that are not human. So then to have sex, even the most basic human sex with another human body is already to be having sex with a collective of interspecies relations. We don't prefer to think about that. But that's the reality. I mean, that's the biological reality. Um, in, in discourses around STIs and STDs, we could, we could think of those, those discourses or those practices as ways of managing interspecies intimacies if we wanted to think about them in those ways. Ecosexuality gives us that opportunity. It opens sexuality to considering the ecological entanglements that are already implicit in our sexual practices. And then there are really practical things like the ways in which synthetic hormones from birth control are being urinated into water supplies, and now frogs are, being, um, are uh, mutating into interspecies um, mutations of their... Of their um, uh, uh, sexual characteristics... Um, condoms end up somewhere. You use a condom, you throw it in the trash, it ends up somewhere. It probably is going to be metabolized within the, ecos the, the decomposition um, of some landfill somewhere. But that's, a, that's an ecological material consequence of our sexual practices. Um, even things like uh, masturbating to internet pornography. Well, that's an energy resource that's directly connected to probably coal mining, maybe wind farms, maybe something else. But our, our most mundane sexual practices already have ecological implications. Ecosexuality is a way of turning our attention towards that basic level, practical mm. level. And then I would say that there are people, there are artists of many different genres, people working like the ecosexual bathhouse, which was really about opening it, my, my understanding from a distance. Pony Express, right? Is mm. like, yeah. um, my ex understanding from a distance, looking at their documentation and the, uh, and the other kinds of media attention that it was given, was introducing the possibilities of um, sensual experiences with more than human life and, and proposing that we consider those things as sexual. Um, blending it with things like BDSM, um, blending it with 
other things that we recognize as sexual practices or sexual subculture, and then introducing non-human elements into that. I think that's great. And also, we do. It would be, I think, potentially useful to continue to consider them under um, an umbrella of artistic practice. That we um, art is both a material practice that's doing something, but it's also proposing something, it's asking us to think about something. So I would say even work like that is directing our attention back to considering the ways in which our sexualities are already ecological. I am quite interested in looking at the ways in which the arts broadly, and then the performing arts in particular, um, direct our attention in those ways. So I look at performance art, I look at dance, I look at pornography, and the ways in which they position the human in relation to the non-human in ways that we might understand as sexual. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. It's a big concept. It is. And that's, I think, why I struggled to explain it. Yeah. And I didn't do a PhD Precisely. in that. Yeah. Um, but it is, it's very complex, and there's so many diverse understandings out there in terms of what it means. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, when well, I would say that... Um, because I present on that material a lot, and I'm often asked, like, well, why? Why do we need this concept? Do we need another sexual identity out there? And one thing that I think is worth considering is that sexuality continue, continues to be a frontier along which we maintain um, uh, insistently, if not violently, our human exceptionalism, that we are different, we are substantially different from all other life on this planet. And we've managed to deconstruct that in certain ways, in the kind of biological ways, in um, situating ourselves in Earth systems theories of um, distributed agency across different life forms. But as soon as we start talking about sexuality, people get very um, species oriented. Like, no, there's no sexual contact between our species and another species. Like, really, because all, all of the agricultural industry is predicated on us managing the reproduction, reproductive capacities of other species. How is that not an interspecies sexual contact when we're inseminating animals at industrial scales? How is that not sexual? And I think what people, there's some idea of contamination or there's some idea of pollution being some idea of what it means to be a pure human Mm. that is extremely uh, resilient um, but speaks to some really problematic um, philosophical assumptions about what it means to be human. This is where I think research gets very interesting because from the research, um, somebody who is a practicing artist, mm-hmm. the research then gets kind of transitioned into the work right. or moved into the work. So I guess, like, how does, do those ideas, philosophies, theories um, feed into your own practice and the way you think about your work? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. It's a short version. Um and have made very little work that I consider to be directly eco-sexual. Um, a couple of years ago, I made a piece. It was in, during the last year of my PhD. Um, the question that I put to myself was, okay, now I've spent years studying other people's work um, and even participating in some of their work. So Annie Sprinkle and Elizabeth Stevens have, were having these annual performance art weddings to various environmental entities, if we want to call them that, or non-human elements in the world. Um, 
and with them I married the Appalachian Mountains and I also married the sun. So like I participated in those events, but I was still operating inside their framework. What would be my version of that? And I made a piece called um, Death Drive Obscene On Scene. And it was very simple. It was more performance art than dance. Um, although I premiered it at a dance studies conference. Um, and there was recorded text from Donna Haraway, from Sigmund Freud, and from who else was in that? Oh, Claire Colebrook. Um, I came on stage wearing a slip um, with a dildo and a bottle of lube and took my underwear off and lubed up the dildo and masturbated during the duration of the, with the dildo inside of me. Um, for the duration of this text. So it was sort of, it was a radical juxtaposition of this erotic activity and this extremely scholarly, dense scholarly text. Um, that juxtaposition was important to me, like where does this live in the body, um, these, these ideas. But also the text itself, we're describing, like Haraway, the text from Haraway was talking about the, um, the vast amounts of non-human genomes in our body, the bacteria, the fungi, the viruses that are literally symbiotic with our cells at this point. And having that text being read while someone is masturbating in front of you, um, how does that text refigure the body that I'm viewing? Um, what does, what's the significance of what I'm seeing against the backdrop of what I'm hearing? So that was a way in which I was trying to deal with that work a little bit. How was it received? Well, I don't know. I don't know how it was received. I've gotten very little feedback on that piece, actually. Um, it was an interesting site at which to premiere it. I was, um, I don't know, I have very little idea, concept of how uh, much American dance scholars are read in Australia. Uh, Susan Foster, does that name me? Okay. Yeah. Susan Foster is... Like poem. Yeah, she's a really important scholar in American dance um, studies. Uh, she was sitting like two feet away from the stage. It was like in a cafe sitting with the audience on all sides. It was at a dance studies conference. So that meant a lot of the people who were on the search committees for jobs that I was applying for that year were at the performance. And I was like, well, so this is either going to launch my career <laughs> or this is professional suicide. Like, but it is what it is. This is the work that I'm making, and this is the work I want to make, and people can be okay with that, or, they, or I probably don't want to work there, was the logic at the time. Um, I have a job now, so that's cool. <laughs> I, yeah, I, the people who talked to me about it talked about um, just the, the difficulty of listening to the text, of hearing the words of the text, and staying present for what was happening. It's very difficult to listen to dense academic prose in general. It's something we're practicing a lot this week, <laughs> listening to dense academic prose. And I'm interested in that. Why is it that dense language brings us away from presence or away from bodies somehow? Um, so staging that intimacy was part of it. Um, or they would focus entirely on what was happening and kind of get drawn into the erotic experience of being a spectator to this masturbatory act and totally lose track of what was being said in the text and then suddenly come back in and have no idea what they were talking about. So that vacillation of attention was something that people talked about a lot. Um, That's yeah. sharing quite an intimate act very publicly. Yeah. Uh, I mean, maybe you don't see it as overly intimate but how, how do you kind of consider or like prepare for that mentally well 
guess I have three short thoughts about that. One, I had been working on scholarship um, on pornography for years at that point. Um, I had worked with a queer porn company in San Francisco. I was transcribing interview footage with their performers. Um, so I had gotten to know a lot of the people that I was writing about in these films. And so something about, I think, having that experience of like, oh, re- these are real people, they have real lives, they perform for the camera, and that's their job, and then they have lives, and they have sexual partners on screen, they have sexual partners off screen. Sometimes they're the same people, sometimes it's not. Um, but just, I think that um, conditioned isn't the right word that gave me a context for performing intimate acts in public spaces, whether those are on video or live. Um, I had been performing burlesque for about two years at that point, so I'd been taking my clothes off on stage pretty regularly at that point. I think performing some sort of sexual act on stage was the next frontier or the next horizon from the work that I was already doing. It's like, well, I've already been naked in front of you people. Let's just put something inside of me, shall we? And see how that goes. Um, and then I had one other thought about that. Oh, actually, this was one of the pieces of feedback um, that was, after the fact, kind of shocked me into a realization of how intimate it was. Um, a, very, a dear friend with whom I had, had sex a few times, um, but so who knows me sexually offstage, um, knows the, the ways in which I tend to be oriented, the way, the kinds of sex I tend to have. Um, in general, I'm not someone who's penetrated. In general, if I'm with other people, I'm either the person who's going to penetrate or we can ex- explore a whole range of other possibilities. Like those aren't our only options. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for, and he knew that watching the piece, I, w- I didn't, I was not thinking at all that he was thinking about that while watching the piece. And afterwards he came up and said, like knowing that about you and then watching you fuck yourself on stage for like 10 minutes. Like that was, I don't know. I felt like he said, I felt like I crossed a line with you. Like I, I, I was watching you cross a line. That's not a line that you cross very often. And so, so we built a form of intimacy through that process, I guess. And the fact that what I did on stage is not entirely synonymous with what I do off stage. Not that I don't fuck myself with a dildo, but like that's not um, it's not the majority of the sex that I have. Um, so that gave me a little bit of distance. Yeah, that makes sense. And yet, I, that is part. It is part of my sexual practice. It's not something that never happens. Mm. I just realized this is a podcast. Whatever. Like in terms of like performance. Um, I've interviewed a lot of dancers that have kind of talked about going out on stage to entice the audience or to turn the audience on or to make the audience feel some sort of desire to them. Yeah, I mean, I I don't know if I've ever performed in order to turn people on or entice them or make them desire me. Even my burlesque is... um, I got involved in burlesque because I was a scholar of sexuality in dance, it seemed like a logical practice for me to engage with. But I engage with burlesque as a set of uh, idiomatic strategies for choreography. So burlesque is predicated on anticipation, on duration, and revealing parts of the body over time. 
building anticipation. Um, so there's a, there's a very specific temporality to burlesque. I, as a choreographer coming from contemporary dance, all of my burlesque work is whatever else it's doing, it is experimenting with the um, elasticity of those conventions. And I would say probably very many audiences who see me do burlesque about halfway through whatever piece I'm doing are not sure it's burlesque. Yeah. They're probably like, this is, I, actually I can say that with absolute certainty, the number of audience people that I've talked to at this point, um, 100% the thing that I hear the most after I perform is that was not like anything I've ever seen before. And I would say in general, burlesque audiences are not people who go see dance concerts. So the burlesque audience is not the contemporary dance audience. So by bridging that, I'm accessing or exposing them to things that they've never seen before. And I know that going in. What that means is the legibility of desirability is confounded a little bit. They don't know how to desire under those conditions, whatever those conditions are, whether it's like a piece that I just did in May. I literally re repeated the same phrase of movement um, for seven minutes. So it was about repetition. It was about exhausting this, this, this particular set of possibilities. And it accelerated. It built in speed. But could the, could the average view, burlesque viewer, were they sensitive to that? Did they realize it was getting faster? I don't know. Um, I know that they were confounded by the fact that it was happening over and over and over again. But I was performing. I was contracted to do this show or asked to be in the show, contracted. Um, it's a seven-show cycle around the seven deadly sins. The first one was lust. And so as a choreographer working in burlesque as an idiom, I ask, what, what are the formal structures? What are the formal dimensions of lust? And one is this building towards climax, a building towards something. But also there's this, in this kind of psychoanalytic way of the pleasure principle and the repetition compulsion, we do the same things over and over in order to make ourselves feel those things again. And so I was interested in doing this set, specific set of movement, movement vocabulary, um, in this, in this re repetitive and accelerating syntax. Mm. I don't know if people know how to desire under those conditions, but that wasn't why I was doing it. I was doing it to experiment within this idiom um, and take my clothes off while I'm doing it. And inside of that is the kind of social politics of why I'm doing burlesque, which is really to um, introduce more body diversity onto the burlesque stage, burlesque, neo-burlesque, burlesque in the 21st century, whatever you want to call it. Specifically in the U.S., I'm not sure about other places, um, has a, a reputation for body positivity for lots of people of different sizes in burlesque. But it does tend to be um, women. It does tend to be, or if there are men, they're in, they, they operate under what's called boylesque a lot of the time. Um, there's very few gender non-conforming burlesque performers. There's very few gender queer or trans or um, gender variant performers. And that's something I'm interested in putting on stage is can you, can you, deal with these signals of femininity? Can you be presented with what you recognize to be tropes of the feminine and also morphology or anatomy that's not what you would anticipate um, alongside or beneath those signals? I don't know if a public is, knows how to desire under those circumstances either, but that's where the politics of it is really important to me is um, putting gender queer bodies on stage. You mentioned, like, um, back at the start of your page, they've been very interested in both gender and sexuality. Yeah. And that seems to be, like, a thread 
could have been a lot through a lot of your work. Absolutely. I would say those are the uniting factors of everything I do. And so, Maybe. so what it seems right. What is it about, um, I guess, dance as an art form or burlesque or, you know, that allows for that possibility? Or how do you seek to challenge, I guess, mm-hmm. kind of regimented understandings of both gender and sexuality, which still, despite a lot of diversity, is seen quite monoculturally and mm-hmm. quite binary? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, how do you challenge that? Well, I would say I challenge it differently in my scholarship and in my teaching and in my performance and choreography. So, like, each of those practices um, allow for different forms of intervention. The reason for dance and gender and sexuality is, for me is sort of obvious. It's the body. I think it's the all three are operating at the intersection of what a body can do, um, gender being what a body is allowed to do or what a body is expected to do or what a body of a certain form, um, what roles a body of a certain form are cast in from the start or the choreographies that are anticipated from a body that looks in a certain way. Um, sexuality is a set of practices. We could also see sexuality as a set of skill sets, but it's also a set of orientations. Um, we could understand orientations uh, conceptually, but also spatially. Who is it we turn towards? How do we reach out towards a body that comes near? This, this is all choreography. Um, so sexuality is a choreography in as much as it's anything else. So dance is dance is sort of ideal space. Jane, De- Jane Desmond made this argument. I'm not, this is not me. Jane Desmond made the argument that dance is the ideal space at which to examine gender and sexuality, and gender and sexuality is are, is are areas in which um, we need to also be considering dance and how those how dance has been a mechanism for producing those norms. All of that being the context in which I'm working, um, then each piece, performance or choreography, um, I'm trying to be attentive to what are those expectations, what are those norms, how do they operate, um, usually through stylized repetition of acts, in a performative, Butler performative understanding of gender and sexuality. Um, how do I present those recognizable styles and in that presentation, uh, do something unexpected with them or do something to the point where they become legible. So uh, concrete examples can be helpful here. Um, same piece that I referenced earlier with the bu- dragging the bodies is the dance called Toward Belonging. And at the beginning, or near the beginning, um, the four dancers in the piece are walking in straight lines and they are walking repetitively in straight lines. So that there's the um, continued, uh, redundant almost, but definitely repetitive, reiterative orientation along a straight line. So a straight orientation is presented again and again and again. And then the line starts to turn, so the line rotates on an axis around the stage. What does, what does it mean to move in a straight way if that straight line is also turning? Is that an experiment in sexuality? I don't know, but I think so. I think it is. How do bodies follow one another along a straight line? Um, and then how, does, how do bodies following one another then move the line is, I think, quite an interesting question. Or I, it was interesting enough for me to keep asking it. Um, so that's one of the ways. Is I, I would say at this point, because of the nature of my choreography, as I said earlier, I'm mostly interested in task-based minimalist structures for choreography. My departure point is often what are the structures implicit in whatever it is that I'm researching. So sexuality comes with a certain set of formal constraints or a certain set of formal expectations, both within dance but also within our daily lives. 
how are those then departure points for um, for making work? I made another dance last fall called Becoming, 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 in which I was very interested in what it means to um, engage in a process of becoming feminine. What does it mean to become feminine or what does it mean to become woman in the Deleuze and Guattari sense? Um, and so I identified several different stylistic tropes that we associate strongly with femininity. Um, abstracted a series of postures and poses from fashion magazines that were then repeated for 17 minutes. Um, the same da- dancers moving through the same sequence of postures and then from those postures drifting into a very straightforward, simple um, bourree with swan arms that references both the dying swan but also Swan Lake imaginary of that ballerina figure as some sort of unachievable female ideal. And what does it mean to come from this like, like posturing femininity into this like unrealizable femininity? And then what happens beyond that? And that's where the dance goes. But I didn't come up with that movement. They're found materials. And then I structured them into a repetitive form that hopefully makes us denaturalizes them or makes them so makes them so incessant that we have to look at them differently so what's next what's what are you currently working on well i am at psi 22 i just presented work on ecosexual resources of ecosexuality for mitigating climate change i think that's what i talked about um (laughs) I am start in the fall. I'm starting my second year of a three-year visiting, uh, visiting assistant professor position at Denison University, where I'm teaching in the Department of Dance, Queer Studies, and Gender Studies. Um, I'm doing a conference on transgender health in the fall. That's a departure for me. I haven't done a transgender health conference before, um, but I've been teaching in the area of transgender studies for the last year. Um, and it's an area in which I want my activism to move. It, my academic life is already moving in that area. I want to be more active in my community in that way. And so I'm speaking, hopefully, we'll see, in October, about um, what are some things that we as a community can learn from transgender studies as a, as a field, as an area of research, but specifically beyond the university. How, how can these ideas start to circulate in the community, not just within journals and um, anthologies and things. How can the questions that um, people like Kate Bornstein and Sandy Stone and Susan Stryker were raising in the 80s and 90s, and we're still, as a community, not, not asking those questions in a lot of areas. There's a lot of dominant narratives in, in trans politics and trans representation. Um, so that's something that I'm working on. I am, what else am I doing? I am collaborating with an artist named Melissa Vogley Woods on a video project that she wants that she's orchestrating um, around a series of videos that she's doing around physical intimacy. She and I are going to do a lap dance video. Um, We're going to film that sometime in August. I'm not quite sure what form that's going to take. I'm choreographing new work at Denison in the fall, and I have some ideas of what. Oh, I'm performing in Baton Rouge next week. Baton Rouge, Louisiana is where I'm from. I'm visiting family, and while I'm there, I am performing in a concert called Currently Known As Enough. Still working out what that's going to be. Sounds like you need to fit a holiday in there as well. That was supposed to be this. (laughs) I came to an academic conference on the other side of the world. Yeah, I don't know when my holiday is going to be. Um, I don't plan to travel very much in August. I plan to take August to prepare for the next semester. 
If you're interested in learning more about Michael's work, you'll find a list of links at delvingintodance.com. In two weeks' time, tune in for the next instalment. Thanks for listening.